This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 30th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. A clear understanding of the surveillance that governments conduct without a warrant demands a clear understanding of the protections of the Fourth Amendment. Jim Harper is co-author of a new Cato Institute brief in the case of Carpenter v. United States, which goes before the U.S. Supreme Court soon. We spoke earlier this month. This case has uh, elements of several different uh, things that we typically see with uh, cases involving surveillance. We have um, warrantless tracking. We have uh, what's called the third-party doctrine. And uh, they, sort of, they sort of combine here to form is – this, is this a really good opportunity, bottom line, for the court? It's a great opportunity and you're right that this brings together a lot of important threads that are out there for the court to weave together into, one would hope, new doctrine. The case is a a straightforward uh, robbery case where uh, Timothy Carpenter and his uh, colleagues were charged with a string of robberies. Evidence gathered about them uh, included data about where they had been over a period of, I think, 120 days or something like that. That data was acquired from their cell phone providers, T-Mobile and Metro PCS. For a cell phone to work, it has to connect to local cell towers. And to improve their services, cell phone providers keep track of what phone connected when and where. Uh, That data is kept for a good good long while for their business purposes and uh, the government is using it in investigations like this to figure out who's been where. The data confirmed that they had been at the location of these various crimes they were suspected of. OK. So this is uh, Miranda in a way because Miranda wasn't a good guy and yet uh, made uh, some important case law for uh, courts and cops to deal with forever. These these are not good guys, but uh, <laughs> but but the rules that are made in cases like this apply to all of us. So this is why we we represent or we argue the side of uh, people that are bad people. But the Constitution's protections are for everyone. So so walk us through what the uh, opportunity is for the court. It's essentially these guys were tracked. Cops did not get a warrant. They just went to the cell pro- cell provider and said. We'd like this data. The provider gave them the data and uh, they used it as evidence against these gentlemen. The providers were required to turn over the data under the Stored Communications Act, which uses a relatively low standard. It's equivalent to well, the Terry standard, which is a reasonable expectation that you'll uh, – I'm sorry, a, a reasonable suspicion that you'll, you'll uh, find some relevant evidence of crime, not the probable cause standard of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and the lower court used reasonable expectations of privacy doctrine, which is which has grown up over the last fifty years, out of a, of a case called Katz. And the 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 way the Katz court treated the Fourth Amendment was rather than applying the text, they said, you know what, uh, what's going on when we're talking about communications and these complicated, unfamiliar things that aren't houses and papers? We're going to talk about privacy and whether a person's reasonable expectation of privacy has been invaded. Well, that doctrine gave us the third-party doctrine, which you alluded to earlier, uh, which is that if you've shared information with a third party, well, you can't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. And that was applied in a case called Smith versus Maryland, uh, where a, a guy who was accused of uh, of a robbery and then stalking 
was was convicted using data about some telephone calls that he made. So Smith versus Maryland is is the the case that uh, purports to substantiate the idea that you don't have any Fourth Amendment interest in in data about what you're doing with your phone. Now that data is much more intimate than it was in 1976, Smith versus Maryland, because the data includes where you've been all day, every day, for hundreds of days in the recent past. All right. So. Um the relationship between uh, this reasonable expectation of privacy, which – what is the reasonable expectation of privacy? How do courts get at it and how do we know if our expectation of privacy is reasonable? Your question illustrates the problem with the test. And in our brief, we argue that it's a sociological exercise and not a juridical or legal exercise. It asks judges to suss out based on simply their age and experience in life what the entire society thinks is appropriate in terms of privacy. That's especially hard in a high-tech environment where the technology is changing, expectations are unsettled. Uh, it's a sociological exercise, but it's also an exercise in prediction that is essentially uh, asking judges to, to make decisions that they aren't equipped to make. We essentially suss out what society's expectation would be. And the circularity of the test is that very often the judge's decisions are the only thing we have to go on in terms of setting those expectations. So it's it's an awful test. And in the brief, we've argued for the court to go back to interpreting the Fourth Amendment as a legal text, applying the terms of the Fourth Amendment to the facts in the case, and we lay out how it's possible to do that. So it, it's also weird to think about because um, – the test itself should have something to do with your rights, but it just has to, to do with uh, a, a rough poll of what you think society thinks about this thing. It's, it has nothing to do with your right, your rights against uh, search and seizure. It's not even a rough poll. Smith versus Maryland is, is a good example. In that case, the court laid out uh, all the factors that would militate against uh, an expectation of privacy in phone dialing information and discuss none of the factors that would weigh in favor of having such an expectation. So hardly a poll. It was an exercise in um, just probably outcome determinative. This guy is a criminal and we're going to figure out a way to, to get around the Fourth Amendment. And it, it was successful in that way. Now, some people love this test because if you uh, appeal to a court's sense of the glory of privacy well enough, you might win. And the court hasn't always gotten it wrong under this test, but it's just not a reliable test. It's not a legal test. So how can the court apply the text of the Fourth Amendment to uh, this event and this uh, assessment of records that were not uh, – the police probably shouldn't have had access to? Um, how do we draw that line? Well, law students are taught to, to take any, any statutory text and figure out what the pieces of it are that they need to analyze. The Fourth Amendment is fairly simple in that respect. It, uh, it uh, gives people a right against unreasonable searches and seizures of their persons, houses, papers, and effects. So there's a pretty simple uh, set of steps you need to go through. Ask, was there a search? Was there a seizure? If there was, was it of persons, houses, papers, or effects? It's relevant in this case whose papers they were. And then if you find that there was a search or seizure of persons, houses, papers, and effects, you decide whether it was reasonable or not. 
the second clause of the Fourth Amendment suggests very strongly that a warrant is required in cases anything other than exigency and the court's cases have pretty much affirmed that a warrant is required for something to be reasonable if there's not some emergency situation. What does the Jones case tell us about how where the court might go with this? Jones case is a fascinating case. That's the case where law enforcement applied a GPS device to a person's car without a warrant and collected something like a month's worth of location data. So in that sense, it's very similar because this is access to location data. Uh, in Jones, the majority opinion held basically that the attachment of the device was uh, an unconstitutional search. I think it's better thought of as a seizure case because it was an invasion of that piece of property. The right to exclude people from the car was undone by law enforcement behavior. But the majority, uh, the majority opinion um, dealt with it not using the reasonable expectation of privacy test. A minority four concurred but on the basis of the of the reasonable expectation of privacy test. So there's a neat division on the court, if you will, where Justice Scalia writing in Jones said, we're not going to use that old doctrine. We're going to say that this uh, attachment of the GPS device and then using it to, to track was a search. And the other, the other side saying, we're going to use reasonable expectations. This is why I think that the Carpenter case will probably come out uh, with the right result, that is refusing access to law enforcement, the, the question is whether it will be based on good doctrine or whether it will be based on that reasonable expectation doctrine. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, it was Justice Sotomayor in Jones who uh, wrote a separate – wrote separately and specifically singled out the third-party doctrine as problematic. She did and she was the sort of swing vote in that case as to which which doctrine was used and she, she went with Scalia, so away from the reasonable expectation uh, uh, rationale. But she did write uh, not, not really necessarily in this case because it didn't have to do with the third party doctrine. She wrote that this doctrine was probably inapplicable to the times. It was probably never right. But today we share so much information with third parties. Most of our uh, financial services are conducted online. Communications with loved ones, daily, you know, hourly communications with loved ones about intimate and marital affairs and everything else, those are shared with third parties, our telecommunications providers, ISPs, banks, uh, healthcare providers. How much try to try to uh, think of the information that you don't share with a third party in your commercial life, your personal life, et cetera, et cetera, and you'll have a hard time coming up with a with a long list. So the third party doctrine is probably on its way out. People focused on Sotomayor's uh, concurrence uh, because uh, that's an important signal and it's been repeated. Hopefully, the court will do away with the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine of which the third party doctrine is a derivative going through that list. Was there a search? Was there a seizure? And I'll do that just briefly. The seizure in the case I think is clear because the government came to the, the telecom providers using federal law saying you have to turn this in information over as a detail. Uh, Search of data occurs, I think, when it's converted into a format that humans can perceive. So the gathering of the data from the telecom provider is a seizure of it. Uh, looking at it is then a search converting in, in, into, into a, a format that you can look at it. And that's backed by Warren Kerr, who's a, who's a sort of Fourth Amendment uh, big name uh, based on his study of an earlier case using uh, 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 sensor uh, – temperature sensors the, that create thermograms. Uh, the next question is whether it's of persons, houses, papers and effects and I think the, the argument is pretty good that here, uh, though they're in digital form, we do have papers. Um, 
the way the constitution and the way early cases referred to papers was really not as flat pieces of cellulose but as information storage. And so it's well recognized that this is, this is uh, papers. The, the key question is whether this is papers of Carpenter and papers of the, the uh, cellular phone customer. And here is where I argue that the contracts between telecom, telecom providers and users allocate property rights to the users. So look at your privacy policy. Look at your terms of service. Uh, you might be reading it for the first time and that's fine. Uh, and you'll see that, that they are barred from sharing information about you with third parties except for under specific circumstances. Now, they need to share it uh, sometimes for the security of the network. They need to share it with uh, people who are helping to provide service to you. They also can share it with law enforcement um, when there's a legal process in place for doing that. But that's the open question here, whether accessing personal information about you uh, is available under the lower standard of the Stored Communications Act or whether the, whether the higher standard of the Fourth Amendment should apply. Obviously, you can't invite a suspect in, into court to, to uh, seek to quash a subpoena. So the right thing to do when you can't, when you can't ask the suspect whether, whether uh, he or she thinks that their data should be available to the government is to go to a neutral magistrate. That means uh, going and getting a warrant. And that's the last part of the test. Is it reasonable to get this, this stuff without a warrant? And I think the best argument is that it's not. What do you think the court will do? Well, I do think that the court will come out in favor of Carpenter. But we won't kill this test. Is that the, the idea? It's, it's very likely to be conservative in the, in the uh, non-political sense and edge closer to doing away with the third-party doctrine and the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, but may, may not get all the way there. There are some justices who think the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine is perfectly good. I think the majority recognize that it's weak, but it's a big step to move away from a 50-year-old doctrine, even if that step is going back to familiar legal terrain, which is applying the terms of the law to the facts of the case. It's interesting that you know when you talk about papers, you're talking about the information. And the information is the important thing. The fact that it's on, like, it would be useless to seize papers that you couldn't read. It really is. It really is, and it's it's tempting if you're thinking in terms of legal text and 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 reading text strictly to think, well, papers is a form a tangible a form thing. factor for cellulose, and it's usually rectangular, and it's a thing that absorbs ink, and that is what our papers are. But you look at early cases like U.S. versus Boyd. And they talk about invoices, books, and papers. Well, why would you say invoices, books, and papers if the meaning of papers uh, captured invoices and books, which are both themselves made of papers? So if you if you be too highly literal about the word papers, U.S. versus Boyd's language doesn't make sense. Papers is an information storage medium, and just because we're doing the same thing with writing today using digital means, these, these are papers. Jim Harper is vice president of the Competitive Enterprise Institute and co-author of the Cato Institute Brief in the case of Carpenter v. United States. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.